glad you're here if you're here in the room, and happy Father's Day to the people we're greeting today. I want to welcome those that are joining us online as well. I'm always thankful when all of you are here, uh, and I want you to know that I don't ever take that, uh, that for granted, that you're actually here, especially after I heard about what happened to one particular pastor. A well-known author who is a pastor named Tom Rayner uh, shared a comment that he received uh, when he was um, candidating at, at his very first church, and he preached his trial message there. And that particular church was kind of at a critical juncture in its history because there were only seven members that were left, and so it was literally on the brink of closing. And so now the question was, was would they call this brand new young pastor, or would they decide to go ahead and close the church? Well, after hearing him uh, preach, one member clearly communicated that she was even more unsure as to whether or not they should continue to go ahead or actually close the church. And here's, here's her comment back to him that day. She said, Tom, we, we've had some bad preachers, but you're probably the worst I've ever heard. And so it's a toss-up to me as to whether we close the church or we have to listen to you every week. And uh, so that sounds like she had the gift of encouragement, don't you think? Uh, she probably needed that. Uh, so I really appreciate you being here. And I'd like to ask this morning a question. What's the earliest memory from childhood that you have? Going back to the earliest memory of childhood that you have. For me, of course, it would be on the day I was born. I remember the doctor holding me upside down and then swatted me across the backside. Actually, no, that's not true. I don't remember that. In fact, I'm kind of glad I didn't remember any of that. The earliest memory that I can recall, I think, was back when, when I was between two and three years old. And my older sister and I were playing out in the backyard, having a great time, and my mom called us in for supper. And we were having so much fun, we weren't in the mood to comply, and so we ran through the side door of the detached garage that was in the backyard to hide. And when mom called us a second time, I don't know, I got into my older sister, uh, but when my mom called, she stuck her head out the door and then stuck her tongue out at my mom. Uh, which resulted in her getting her mouth washed out with soap. Anybody here ever have that experience? A couple of you would admit to that. It's not very pleasant from what I know. And as her younger brother, I'm pretty sure I made a mental note that I needed to avoid that particular behavior from then on. Well, you know, we can be assured that today's holy hero never experienced anything like that when he was observing his older siblings' behavior as they grew up together in a carpenter's home in Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. And you're likely familiar with the parents of this holy hero. Uh, do the names Joseph and Mary happen to ring uh, a bell? It's the third week in our summer series, Holy Heroes, and our hero for today is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I'm thinking it had to be at least a bit of a challenge for James to believe that the brother that he'd grown up with truly was the Son of God. Uh, but James was selected to be one of our holy heroes because his life and his ministry not only had a huge impact on the formation of the early church, uh, but his inspired writings continue to encourage and challenge Christ followers uh, even, even to this day. In fact, I would encourage you sometime this week to sit down with your Bible and read through the book of James. There's just five chapters, uh, and uh, in so many ways it exemplifies the teachings of Jesus. Uh, his, his writings have helped define the mission of the church by candidly addressing topics such as suffering, and faithfulness in prayer, and purity, and perseverance, and Christ-like care for one another, especially uh, for the poor. 
In fact, James is about the only other writer in the New Testament who, who te talks as much about social injustice as Jesus did. And just like his brother, James doesn't really mince any words when he does that. At least a quarter of the book that James wrote is devoted to encouraging and advocating for the poor while really directly confronting the rich about their greed and their exploitation and their short-term thinking and condemning favoritism based on wealth. And today, as we explore the life of James, I want us to start by considering really the backstory as to how this brother of James was able to arrive at the place he did because it definitely was not a direct route. It actually included a lot of, of unique twists and turns. And so as we begin this morning, I'm gonna ask you to use your imagination for just a little bit. And what I'd like for you to imagine is imagine having the savior of the world for a sibling, <laughs> as one of your siblings. Imagine what that must have been like. What would it have been like to have Jesus for a brother. And we do know that Jesus' family included siblings because the Gospel of Matthew actually identifies his brothers by name. And the context was a visit that Jesus made back to his hometown in Nazareth where his identity was actually brought into question. And so in Matthew chapter 13, we read these words. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? That's why we believe he grew up in a carpenter's home. Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all of his sisters here with us? Now you gotta remember that for 30 years, Jesus had actually lived among these people without drawing any noticeable attention to himself. But for all of us, knowing now who he was and is, I mean, think about it. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would have outclassed his siblings in every single category? I mean, just for example, even swapping family stories, it would have been hard to, to pretty much compete with that special star that appeared you know, when your brother was born. Uh, which is why I'd like to really explore three, I think, very unique family dynamics that must have been present there in Jesus' earthly family of origin. And so for starters, think about it. He had to have been uniquely loved by Joseph and Mary. I mean, he was a special child. Now, I'm wondering today, is there anyone here who believes that you were or are your parents' favorite child? Anybody here? We've had a few at every service are willing to admit they think they're their parents' favorite child. Now, on the other side of that, how many of you have ever felt that one or more of your siblings actually received some preferential treatment or had it easier than you? All right, probably a few of those. Well, you know, there were four kids in our family, and my older sister and I, we are pretty sure that our younger two siblings got away with way more than we ever did. Now, fortunately, what I think is that most of us, what we've experienced when it comes to family is that love actually expands to fill the necessary relationships. I mean, think about it. Uh, when your second child is born, you don't have to split your love in half so that you can divide it evenly with the next child. You, you just get a whole brand new measure of love to love that child with. But as much as Joseph and Mary likely loved all of their children, remember that they really, they had the inside scoop concerning who Jesus was and where he had come from. And that's because that little visit that Joseph, or that Joseph, that Mary had from the angel that one night in Luke chapter one, where he said to her, hey, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And you're gonna conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. And he will be great, 
and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, you know, the problem with being given that information is that you can't really share it with anyone else because you do, and they think you're crazy a little bit. So imagine the weight of responsibility that Joseph and Mary must have felt knowing that God was entrusting his son to them, truly a child like no other. What an amazingly weighty responsibility, which probably sheds a little bit of light on the level of panic that Joseph and Mary experienced that one time when after traveling a, day, a day's journey away from Jerusalem, they recognized that they didn't have a clue where Jesus was, the son that God had entrusted to them. They had lost him, and he actually remained missing for three full days. Can you imagine, what are we going to do when God finds out that we've lost Jesus? That's not going to go well. I mean, it had to be bad. But how could Joseph and Mary not have treated Jesus differently? I mean, they knew he was the Lord. And so imagine how they both grew in their trust in and deference to Jesus as he grew older and older. Now, the second family dynamic that I think would have impacted James' experience of Jesus is that Jesus would have been without peer uh, in his siblings in intellect and in wisdom. And we're actually given a glimpse of that when Joseph and Mary eventually find that lost son um, when it could only have been what described as a desperate search. And there he was. Remember where he was? He was in the temple, in his father's house. And he was astounding even the seasoned rabbis at just 12 years of age. And we read about it in Luke chapter 2, where it says after three days, they found him in the temple courts. What was he doing? He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And everyone who heard him. I mean, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. See, I'm, I'm thinking that Jesus was the kind of person who always said the right thing at the right time and never said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so imagine being his sibling. I mean, even a sinful, falling, yet gifted sibling can be a hard act to follow. But imagine a gifted and perfect sibling and having to follow that. Well, a third dynamic, I think, in their family would have had to been that Jesus is extraordinary and very consistent moral character <laughs> could have made him a little bit unnerving to be around. I mean, he's always perfect. <laughs> I mean, how could anyone with an active sin nature such as James not resent uh, in some way being eclipsed by such a phenomenal brother? I mean, his siblings must have grown increasingly self-conscious around him because their own sinful motives and behavior could never match the quality of Jesus' life. <laughs> they must have had a, a, a hard time living with that. And it's not like Jesus wasn't presented with the opportunity to sin. He had the opportunity, we know that, because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our own weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every single way in every single way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Now, all that to say, they clearly knew that Jesus was different. But what we notice is that it started getting out of hand when Jesus began to assert that he was the son of God, making himself equal with God. And that's where it was really a challenge. Jesus being God in the flesh was a bit challenging for his family to believe. Now again, remember, beginning with his baptism, Jesus was 30 years old before he really stepped into his role as the Messiah. 
And, and while we're about to read the words that describe the situation that he entered into there, there's also the, the underlying emotional drama and the relational implications from the narrative that you and I are kind of left to imagine. But I can tell you what, those, those were very, very real. Because what we find is that during the early part of Jesus' public ministry, that his brothers not only criticized him, they rejected his message, and they refused to follow him. And what that lets me know is that there had to be much more pain than we know behind Jesus' words during a kind of an awkward visit in his hometown back in Nazareth. Because in Mark chapter 6, we're told that the response he got was this, they took offense at him. And that's when Jesus said to them, you know, a prophet really is not without honor except, except in his own town and among his relatives and even in his own home, his own home. And it was rough for him there. We know that because we're actually told in John chapter 7, verse 5, that even his own brothers didn't believe in him, didn't trust who he was. And then if you remember, there was that one point when James and the rest of the family kind of thought Jesus had lost his senses, and they showed up one day when he was teaching to take him custody. <laughs> and we read about that in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's, he's out of his mind. Now, it's pretty obvious from that that Jesus' own family thought he was taking himself a little bit too seriously early on in his ministry. But you know what's amazing is somehow Jesus was able to convince his own family that he was God. Because all that changed following Jesus' ascension when he returned to the Father, it became clear that by then a majority of his family had had a major change of heart. Because we find while waiting back in Jerusalem for the next move of God's Spirit, this is what we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says they all joined together, all the disciples together, and they were constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I don't think I ever noticed this before, and with his brothers. His brothers now were part of that movement. And it makes you wonder, what could transform James from this sarcastic skeptic into a sincere supporter? And I think the reason we need to explore this today for a little bit is because it's a clue for us today how a cynic can actually become a fully devoted follower of Christ as James did. Now in church history, James' nickname actually was James the Just. And it's a clue for us today, uh, really, uh, of what differentiated him uh, from the other apostles, like the, the other James apostle of Christ or numerous other Jameses at that time. But you wonder, why James the Just? Well, early Christian writers tend to speak of James and his exemplary religious life. I mean, living for God as a very sanctified Jew as well as a dedicated follower of Christ. And so because of his life, very quickly, James rose in respect and in leadership in the early Christian church in Jerusalem to the point that even the Apostle Paul identified James as a pillar in the church. And he was recognized as a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church because when a council was held to actually decide what would be done with, with the Gentile Christians as to whether or not they should be required to keep the law of Moses or not, it was actually James who was given the last word. I mean, literally the last word. And we read about it in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. 
It says, when they had finished, everybody else had made their case. When they had finished, James spoke up. And brothers, he said, listen to me. And you know what? They did. They listened to him. So I just wonder, how, how is that possible? Because early on, James had a completely different opinion when it came to his brother's very bold claims. James had been a skeptic. And I think it brings us back just to two, I think, very important considerations. What convinced James to believe that his brother was the Messiah and then become one of his disciples and then to devote his life to Christ's kingdom, uh, the first one would have to be, of course, the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection would change a lot of things. And you know, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus actually personally appeared to James after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And while we don't know if Jesus ever informed James about his plan, on more than one occasion, we do know that Jesus made very clear the steps that were going to lead up to his crucifixion and then his resurrection. He was absolutely clear that he was going to be handed over to the Jewish authorities, that he would be crucified, and then on the third day that he would be raised from the dead. And I love what Andy Stanley says about this. He says, you know, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'll just go with whatever that man says. And I think that's, I think that's fair. But I want us to remember today that really the resurrection alone was not enough to convince James that his older brother could actually become his savior. See, there's a second important consideration concerning Jesus that authenticated him both as Lord and as Savior. And that was the persuasive power of Jesus' perfect righteousness. I mean, he lived in such a way that it was undeniable. And I've already mentioned that James Nick's name became James the Just because he followed the Mosaic law so well. And you know, one of the things any Orthodox Jew would know about God is that God is perfectly righteous. There is no unrighteousness in him at all. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures plainly teach that God is not just holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And he is without iniquity, and he speaks only the truth. And James would have known also that the Messiah was going to be called Mighty God. And so logically, if God is perfectly righteous and the coming Messiah is going to be God, then the Messiah was going to have to be perfectly righteous as well. And you know what? Growing up in the same household, James was in the perfect position to know if Jesus was truly righteous, wasn't he? I mean, because growing up with siblings, have you noticed, not only do you see the sins that the others commit, but you often participate with them in some of them. And I don't know how it was growing up in your household or not, but as I grew up with my siblings, I watched sometimes them sin. Sometimes we helped each other sin. And we were probably more aware of each other's sins than anyone else. So I gotta tell you, even if one of my siblings were to rise from the grave, there's no way that I would believe that they could be my savior. You know why? <laughs> because we grew up together. And I can promise you that they were not holy, holy, holy. <laughs> and of course, neither was I holy, holy, holy. And the same goes for James. He more than anyone else knew that he wasn't holy. But he had a front row seat to Jesus' life. And so James was in a perfect position to observe any mistake that his brother might make and he wouldn't have ever been able to believe that Jesus was God if, he'd even sin, if he even saw him sin just one time. 
And the reason we know that is because of what James himself writes in his own book. In James chapter 2, verse 10, James wrote and said, you know what, for whoever keeps the whole law, all of it, and yet stumbles at just one point, just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. But you know what, there's one thing that James knew to be absolutely true about his brother Jesus. And it's what the Apostle Peter wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He knew that he'd committed no sin, that there was no deceit that was found in his mouth. And what that meant is that he alone could take our sin upon himself so that we could then be declared righteous. I mean, that's actually what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could actually become the righteousness of God. And we got to remember, folks, the only reason Jesus was able to pay the penalty for our sins is because he had no sin debt himself. And when James became convinced about who Jesus was, he wholeheartedly committed himself to Christ and his mission to the point that it eventually cost him, it cost him his life. Because, you know, traditionally it's believed that James was martyred between 62 A.D. and 69 A.D. when he was literally stoned to death by the Pharisees on the order of the high priest. And he is our, he's our holy hero for today. Because once, once he figured out, once he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who his brother really was, James became willing to die for what he believed about Jesus. If you can get your brother to die for what he believes about you, that's amazing. And what it reminds me today is you're either convinced of who Jesus is or you're not. You can't, you can't be kind of convinced about what he, he, he is. And the reason for that is, of course, is what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It says, because salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, mankind, by which we must be saved. And I got to say, there might be somebody here today who's looking for evidence that Jesus is someone that you should be trusting your life with. And the story of James says, yes, you can trust your life with him. But if James' story alone it can't convince you to become a Christ follower, I got to tell you, there are millions of other people like him who, when, when, when they were confronted with the facts, they couldn't help but put their faith in Christ. One of the greatest examples of that is a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. You might have heard of him. He's a journalist who literally went from being an atheist to becoming a devoted follower of Christ after he set out to disprove the validity of Jesus. And since then, he's written a plethora of books that give us evidence about that. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Creation, The Case for Heaven, The Case for Easter, The Case for Christmas. Man, he's getting on our case, isn't he? He's getting on a lot of cases. And I uh, wanted to provide just a resource for you today. If you're here today and maybe, maybe yourself, you're struggling or you know somebody that's struggling, out in the foyer, there's a table there and these little booklets you're welcome to pick up. It's a Case for Christ, um, the answer booklet. And you'd be welcome to have one of those today. And I just want to say to you, if you're sitting there today and you have family members who do not believe in Jesus, you're actually in pretty good company because so did he. He had family members that were having a hard time and believing in him. But you know, those who knew him best eventually chose to put their faith and trust in him. And I think so should you. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you today for just the life of James, knowing that he grew up in the home where Jesus was and having a sibling like that, how challenging that must have been to really truly believe that Jesus could be your Lord and your Savior. But I thank you for being able to lead James to that conclusion and many others in that family that day. Because, Father, every one of us needs to understand that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Which is why we need to do it now so that when we do it then, it'll be in celebration and love and hope rather than in judgment and separation. So I pray you'd move any hearts here today of people who need to come and put their faith and trust in you to take that step of faith. And may we all live today with that, with that kind of faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.